I sometimes wish the brain I have now and the confidence that I have now, although I do still have imposter syndrome, if I could bottle that up and put that back in my 20-something self, the risks I would have taken. My late father always said nothing is a prison sentence, meaning it is worth trying because you can always go back, except, of course, a prison sentence. But I find that in this day and age, if we're not getting companies to change and evolve in all sorts of ways, corporate responsibility being one of them, then we're losing the opportunities we have as, as successful business people. We live at a moment in time where technology has connected the world. Yet, many people are experiencing a rising sense of disconnection, and research confirms feelings of isolation are increasing. This week's guest, Susan McPherson, provides an antidote. As author of The Lost Art of Connecting, Susan's book provides a valuable methodology for connecting and building more meaningful relationships. Whether at events, at work, as a manager or a leader, a parent or a politician, Susan provides simple guidance on how to rekindle those core human skills many have somehow left behind. As a serial connector, Susan also is an angel investor, corporate responsibility expert and founder and CEO of McPherson Strategies, a communications consultancy focused on the intersection of brands and social impact. She's also a contributor to the Harvard Business Review, Fast Company and Forbes. In the interview, Susan opens up about her early journey in life, developing her thirst for adventure, the huge role her mother and father had in nurturing her deep sense of curiosity and willingness to embrace risk, the values they instilled in her, and the impact that the tragic death of her mother had on the direction Susan took in life, and the serendipitous connections that led her to her career in journalism. Susan discusses how she became an accidental entrepreneur in her late 40s, and we talk about her perspectives on the role of corporations in helping combat our climate challenges and social inequities, and the optimism she has from witnessing the changes and commitments from her corporate clients to address the environmental challenges we face. Susan also deconstructs the three core steps to her art of connecting, gather, ask and do methodology, and discusses its application and value to individuals, managers, leaders, parents, and even event organisers. I hope you're inspired by the optimism, compassion, and generosity of spirit of Susan McPherson. Susan, welcome to the Impossible Network. Mark, I am so excited to be here. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I'm very excited as well. And the, the serendipitous connections between our sort of joint networks is incredible when you start to peel back the layers and realize that things are much closer than they seem. They always are. I yeah. think sometimes we don't pause to actually find out. I know. So let's get going and we'll come on and talk about some of these serendipitous connections. You've had a, an extraordinary life journey covering everything from CSR, marketing, sales, journalism, beginning your own consultancy at age 48. I'll come talk about that because I started my own business as well at a late age, but most recently as an author of a much acclaimed book called uh, The Lost Art of Connecting. But before we get into that, I'd really like to explore your backstory. And maybe we could start with your childhood growing up in, I believe, upstate New York and near a wee place called Hudson, a delightful town now. <laughs> Not then. You did forget waitressing. I was a fabulous waitress. Oh, we've all done that. <laughs> Come on. That goes, that goes with the territory. Exactly. Well, exactly. I, I say I was a waitress. I was a waiter. Yeah. But yeah, maybe I was. <laughs> But yeah, okay. So all those things said, tell us about your childhood and maybe talk about the importance of your parental support and their guidance and their direction on the journey you've taken through life. Well, everyone is is sainted, you know, after they're gone. But I was very, very fortunate to grow up in a house where service and values and kindness was made a priority. And the fundamental notion that every single person 
is deserving of our attention, our compassion, our kindness, and our curiosity was something that was instilled in me from a very, very, very young age. And it might have been because my father was a professional learner. He was a professor, and he taught at a women's college for close to 40 years. And my mother worked in public relations for PBS and various PBS stations. And just to give you an idea, when I would ask her as a as a young teen, mom, why don't you work for one of the the other major networks? I mean, there were only four at the yeah. time, right? And she would say, I couldn't do that because the content for at PBS is so superior and actually good for us versus what else is out there. I can only imagine what she would think today with a thousand channels. <laughs> and yet PBS has still remained that sort of beacon of um, quality. And decency in Thankfully. broadcasting. Yeah. So I, I mean, you know, we were, we were chaotic just like everyone else. And it took me until maybe my 30s to realize that everybody's family is dysfunctional and neurotic. But when you're a young child, you assume your family is the only one. <laughs> yeah. So. Okay. I mean, you, you've talked in, on uh, interviews I've seen you do about how they nurtured your cu- curiosity. And given what you've been doing recently with CSR and also with the book that you've just written, curiosity clearly is a fundamental part of who you are and that defines your ability and your superpower, which I think you describe as being building relationships and, and connections to people. How did they go about nurturing that curiosity? Well, to give you an example, if I would ask my dad, let's say about let's say Thomas Jefferson, instead of ask, actually answering me, which he could probably off the top of his head, he would in Instead, come home the next day with six library books from Russell Sage College Library where he worked and he would hand them to me. So just that. And also, you know, when I was very young, actually five, we um, were able, we had the amazing opportunity to go live in Bucharest, Romania. And this was 1970. So Romania obviously was a very different place. Under Ceausescu. Under Ceausescu. And at the time, Ceausescu was thought to be a hero because he was standing up to the Soviets. And so my mom and dad packed up their little suburban family that had lived, you know, in in, in it literally classic suburbia. We didn't have a picket fence, but, you know, we had a lawn and <laughs> lawn chairs. And, you know, I would take a school bus to kindergarten, but kindergarten didn't happen for me because we went to live in Romania. And then after we lived in Romania for, for many months, we then traveled throughout Eastern and Western Europe. Now, granted, I was five, but it literally instilled in me this thirst for adventure, thirst for finding out what I don't know. And also just, you know, realizing I wasn't in Kansas. I mean, jokes aside, I mean, it was definitely different. And Sesame Street, back to PBS, had just started in 1969. So I had just started watching it. And I knew when we got to Bucharest and there was no Sesame Street, I knew I was definitely uh, a long way from home. And and even uh, further kind of visual image to share with your audience. If we wanted to have chicken at dinner, the woman upstairs would have to slaughter it for us. And again, I didn't grow up on a farm in upstate New York. So I, you know, that was a totally different element. And I, because children play so well with other children, I made no, there were no walls. In other words, I was able to just carry on, even though I didn't speak Romanian. It's incredible that, that being, taken at such a young age one you're adaptable you've got that neuroplasticity and you do adapt 
at the same time to go to somewhere so alien, I mean, like Romania under communist rule in the time of the 70s, you know, the economic conditions couldn't have been great. So it must have been hard. Well, we had bed bugs mm. and we had a one bedroom apartment for five of us. So again, and, and because my dad wasn't with the U.S. State Department, the people we actually interface with and, and would, you know, go and join like the U.S. embassy parties or the Israeli embassy parties because we were we were Jewish. They all had the commissary. They all had like butlers and fancy. I mean, it was a different time. <laughs> state Department. And we were like eating cream of wheat and little oh. boxes of cereal, which again, no, you know, again, I don't want to sound like this privileged. You know what? But uh, it just you know, it, it, not having a TV when you're in the early 70s and not having all your friends, you know, it was obviously... Well, it was character building, yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And it, in, again, the, the love of travel was instilled in me at that age. In fact, as a young child, I wanted to either be, and we called them this then, steward, a stewardess or an astronaut. But stewardess was, but then I was told I was too tiny. <laughs> at that time, you had to be a certain height. What height? What, what, what's your height? It depends on the day. Uh, of <laughs> my, course, yeah. My li- and the heels. <laughs> my license says I'm five foot. All right, okay. No. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Okay. You and Simone Biles have got something in common. Well, my God, to be compared to her would be, is a gift. Well, you mentioned five of you, so you've siblings. You're the youngest. I'm the youngest of three. Mm-hmm. And, and your siblings are? Both in the New York area. My brother, believe it or not, has a PhD in physical chemistry, so that part of my brain never never arrived. And my sister was the chief curator of the Guggenheim for close to 34 oh, years. Fascinating. So, oh. um, yes, and, and just very, you know, completely, completely different thinking than, than I inherited. What was it? I mean, you've mentioned, obviously, the, sort of the Romanian situation, scenario and traveling. Sometimes I, not always, but sometimes I do ask guests about growing up in an environment of either abundance or scarcity. And often I've had a lot of guests that have been, that it has been scarcity of love and affection, but an abundance of wealth, but, and then the opposite. And it, and it crafts and it molds people's characters in an enduring way. And I'm just wondering how that contrasting experience uh, if you reflect on what it was like in the U.S. versus the traveling and the time in Romania. Well, again, we were only gone for, you know, a, a little bit less than a year. But I will say, you know, my parents were both children of the Depression. And growing up in their, house, in, in, in their home, my mother went back to work when I was six because they wanted to make sure they could pay for the three of our, co- our college educations because they were from their, their, that mindset. All four of my, grand, my grandparents came from, three came from the Ukraine area, one came from what was then the Austro-Hungary Air, and Empire. And for them, education was the ticket to everything. But my parents never borrowed money. They never had credit cards. So for me, it was always about live beneath, live within your means, which I, you know, to a certain extent, I still like you can't get rid of these things. Right. And be grateful for anything and everything because you never know when it could be either lost or taken away from you. So that was very much the kind of mindset. But I never felt like we were lacking for anything. I mean, we had one bathroom for five of us in upstate New York, which Again, for most people around the world, that that is still considered a luxury. However, you know, I always felt when I went to my friends, they always had nicer homes, fancier furniture, fancier cars. And my dad would always say, you don't know how much they're borrowing. 
But in terms of love, there was lots of love. And it would come out in distorted ways sometimes, but I never felt a lack of being loved by my parents or by my siblings. Okay. Defining moments. Uh, we always ask about defining moments and our memories growing up. And I'd read and, and heard you talk about the deeply tragic loss of your mother in 1986 in a fire. And that must have had a deeply sort of significant impact on you. And I read at the beginning of your book, the dedication to your mother, Beryl, where you said that she instilled in you the goodness, strength, hope and, and pragmatism that propelled you to living a life filled with meaningful relationships and the pure joy of connecting others. I mean, that's an incredible sort of dedication. How did you deal with that difficult period in life when you were still so young? Well, the first 10 years I was in a coma. Honestly, I, I think it was this, it was so painful and so tragic and so ugly that you just couldn't almost believe it was real. My parents were vacationing in Puerto Rico the week between Christmas and New Year's of that year. And they had, they, the hotel they were staying at didn't have gambling. And my mom used to love to play the slot machines. So my dad dropped her off at the DuPont Plaza Hotel, which a, a, a disgruntled employee decided to set on fire. Yeah. I and remember. yeah, I mean, I, and, you know, just it, 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 it's wrong. Everything was wrong about it. And it was almost like 9-11 in some ways, you know, but long before. And 98 people were killed. But I often now, you know, 34 years later, I almost look at it's like there's like BC and AC, right? Like before, because everything changed from that uh -huh. moment on. I mean, I, I'm sure it, it fundamentally changed who I was. But I, I did know as I progressed in my life that I was literally trying to live the life that she would have lived had she continued. And my siblings and I and people who are still alive today that, that have recollections of her joke about how she was a serial connector or using all like the tools we have today. But or, let me back up. She was using the tools of her day to what we're doing today with social media, uh -huh. right? I mean, but it was a, you know, rotary telephone and the manual typewriter and the U.S. mail. And I just think now, like if she was around today, even in her old age, she would be phenomenal at all the tools. So it must have impacted your father as well. I mean, oh, deeply, deep depression. Yeah. You know, he he continued to teach all the way to the end. Again, you know, from that thrift mentality to get his full pension, he had to work another, I think, fifteen years. But he, to the day he died in two thousand eight, he would talk about her in so, like uh, constantly. And again, you know, I I don't want to. We 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 make saints out of people who who are taken from us too early, but. You know, to give you an idea, at her memorial service, which was at the end of January of 1987, in a northeaster, during a nor it was a huge snowstorm, and 600 people showed up, which, oh, you know, that's that, 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 that <laughs> it gives a good idea. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow. Exactly. Yeah, I read in your um, blog, you made a post acknowledging the um, the collapse of the building in, um, in Miami and just bringing back those memories. And so. Well, I mean, my heart went out to all those people because we had to wait almost five or six days to identify her remains and we had to send dental records. And, you know, that waiting where you still have a glimmer of hope, right? And so I didn't want to take their hope away, but on the same token, it's like you have to brace yourself. And, you know, everybody inevitably will suffer loss. It just, it's just a matter of when. Yeah. That's very true. What was school like for the young Susan? 
I never really fit in. And I, I joke that even today, I often feel like a misfit. And people are like, really, you? I'm like, yeah, I have a, I have imposter syndrome every day of the week. Do you think that's just part of being a, the, uh, the youngest number of siblings? I, I, think it's, I think it's more just being a woman. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Although I shouldn't, I shouldn't generalize no. like that. It might be, you know, being the youngest and having to always prove myself. You know, I, I was always a jack of all trades and master of none. Like I wasn't really good at anything, but I did, I did enough to, I mean, to get by. I wasn't a bra- like super nerd brainiac, but I did well. I took AP classes in high school. I wasn't a cheerleader, so I didn't fit into that crowd. I was a gymnast. I wasn't a good gymnast, but I was a gymnast and I competed and I was tiny. And I used to, as a very young child in my, and as you now, no, since I said my license, but I was bullied a lot for being this, the tiniest girl in the oh, really? class. Yeah. By girls? Boys and girls. girls. Yeah. I still have an awful memory of a, at age nine of a high school boy throwing baske- a basketball at my head and just saying to me, shrimp, shrimp, shrimp. Cruel, yeah. Cruelty of children, cruel, isn't right, it? It's just right. terrific. I mean, I, I've won. I mean, I'm 56 now, so who knows? Yeah, but it's funny how the memory sort of stick with you. It it is like yesterday, Mark. I can still, I can smell the basketball. Mm -hmm. You just wonder if you could meet that person now, that boy now, and just say, "Yeah, you know, would you do it now? Exactly, exactly. Well, and we deal with this every day on social media when people are so, feel so free. But this was in person. Mm -hmm. It was literally on the school playground. (laughs) I mean, there was no one else around. It was a Saturday. Did you think it built a certain sort of stoic part of your character or toughness? Oh, definitely. Well, that coupled with, you know, my mom's death, obviously you get a survivor syndrome, right? That you're you're going to make it no matter what. I think also just being tiny and being the smallest always made me have to be a little bit more boisterous and obviously a little, I don't want to go so far as say loud, but to get noticed, right? Yeah. Because I'd walk in a room and, you know, no one could see me. I mean... And shamefully, I received a D in conduct in fifth grade, and I thought my life was Something over. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> well, now, yeah. but but back then, you know, I mean, it was independently spirited. Seen. Let's say, <laughs> <laughs> honestly, I think the teacher just didn't like me. But uh-huh. anyhow, <laughs> what were your ambitions at that stage? Well, when I was that age, I really did want to be an astronaut. You know, this oh, yeah. I had, so that really stuck. Yeah, except then when I got to high school and I learned I had to continue on after chemistry to physics and I just was like, nope, this is done. And, you know, I think that was the other reason I love gymnastics because my goal was to float and gymnastics, you, well, you float for a second. Yeah. (laughs) And so you went looking at your LinkedIn, you studied political science and history at Albany, but then you went on to do broadcast journalism at Boston. What was the what were the thoughts at that stage? Well, in between, I had worked for Ted Kennedy on Capitol Hill. Oh, really? Yes. Wow, that was uh, an experience. It was amazing. If you know, regardless of what your political beliefs are, he is a, he was, and even in memory, is, is a titan and did so much good for the little person. Let's say, and I don't mean little like me, but people who who needed support, health, you know, labor, everything. One thing I didn't share, my my late grandfather was the editorial cartoonist for the Boston Herald Traveler from 1921 through 1969. And back then, cartoons were so vitally important because many people were had come from the old country and couldn't read. And so they would get their news from, you know, the charcoal sketches. Well, obviously, during the 30s and 40s and 50s, as the Kennedy family came of age, you know, he would obviously sketch the, uh, you know, the entire family and, and the political doings of Massachusetts. 
And so again, back to the connection, my mom helped me get that, that role because graduating with a degree in history meant there was no work. But after six months of, of interning in that office, I realized I don't want to work for government. And I had always loved news. I had just always been a news junkie through high school. And, you know, again, it was like a, it, it was like the intersection of my father being a historian and my mother being in, in television. And I thought, well, you know, I'll go to graduate school so I can kind of figure it out. With the goal, I wanted to produce news. I didn't want to be on air. And then my mother was killed in the middle. So I, I did another semester and then I just couldn't stay in Boston because that's where she grew up and it was just too painful. Uh -huh. So I never finished my, shamefully. But you went on to work for USA Today. I did. So I mean, I opened for you somehow. Yes. Well, and interestingly enough, the 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 two things USA Today is the most at the time was the most TV like newspaper. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, I mean, short little when you write for broadcast news, it's short nuggets of data. That's what USA Today was all about. But back to the connections, my father, after the death of my mother, wanted to be helpful. And all his connections were in academia. I didn't want to go into academia. He found the one connection on a member of the board of trustees of Russell Sage College who was at, and the, her title is, is dated, but it was vice or senior vice president of personnel, which is our equivalent today of HR, for Gannett Corporation. Gannett owns USA Today. He reached out to her, Madeline Jennings. I feature her in the book. And she was willing to meet with me. And I took the train from Albany down to Washington. And I'll never forget walking into her office in the Gannett, the, the two Gannett Towers, which mm -hmm. were outside of D.C. And it seemed like the size of a football field. And she had this beautiful <laughs> mink coat on the back of her door, which I had never seen in real life. And I, she at the time was one of the highest ranking women in business in 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 the U.S. She was on she was on the board of Gannett. Anyhow, she interviewed me. And within a week, I had the next interview with USA Today. So long and short of it, connections matter. Uh -huh. Yeah, at every stage in life. I mean, I've, this whole show is, is podcast is based on serendipity and the recommendations that our guests make of who we interview next. So we have to explore you know, the, the question of serendipity and where it's played a part in, in your um, life and your experience. I'm just wondering if there's, I mean, that obviously you, your mother's connect, connectedness and generosity of spirit clearly opened doors for you. Are there any other really clearly defining moments of serendipity? Oh my could... God, I've had so many. It, 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 it's insane. You know, I'll, I'll just tell you a recent one that actually goes back to my mom. In November of 2019, I met Emily Ramshaw, who at the time was with the Texas Tribune. She's now the founder and CEO of the 19th News, which is a exceptional independent news platform staffed by women supporting the intersection of public policy and women. And she was raising funds to start the 19th. And we sat down. It turns out her father, who was the executive producer of McNeil Lair, was good. I mean, professional friends with my mother. And at that point, she could have said, will you jump off the Brooklyn Bridge? And I would have <laughs> because, you know, it was 33 mm -hmm. years later. But then she the next day reached out to her dad and asked him if he remembered my mom and and he had the most glowing things to say. And, you know, at this point to have anybody who even remembers, right, is special. But I am now on the board of the 19th. Oh, wow. So, you know, we that 
I'm not suggesting that is why I ended up on the board, but first of all, it made me that much more likely to be, you know, curious and interested. And then we had an immediate bond, right? I mean, so I think it's important to show that you never know what you don't know, but if you don't ask the right questions, which clearly you do on this podcast. Mm -hmm. It's it's interesting because reading your book or (laughs) full transparency, sort of skim reading it to get, because I was busy on a, a client project, there's so many sort of just deep truisms in it and, and in human insights that we miss, that we are almost blinded to because of technology. And one, one of the things that's really, that really jumped out at me, because, you know, I, clearly you've got superpowers as a connector. And I think, you know, I've said this in a recent interview to someone, if I have a superpower, it's my willingness to connect to people. But I've been to so many um, networking events here at Neuhaus, at the Harvard Club, and you see people going and connecting and, and you're just talking, exchanging business cards, but they're not really, there's networking, but there's then there's this connecting and there's relationship building. And you also go to a lot of events here in the city, and I'm sure it's in this, true of other cities as well. You'll see people standing there nursing their drinks, look, looking at their phones. I go, what is there to lose by just going up and turning to your neighbor if you're at an event going, hi, what's your story? Yeah. Because you never know what is going to result. And that is at the core of serendipity, I think, is this willingness to, like, say, go down the road rest, less traveled. Yeah. Embrace yeah. risk. Well, I am. I do have a, a remarkable, and I'll, I'll just, I'll share, I'll, I'll hyphenate it or shorten it so your your listeners can get the gist quickly. This very question of we don't know what we don't know and the good that can come when you open that door, it was... 2016 or 2017, I got an email from a friend who said, Susan, my friend Brant Anderson is a filmmaker and he wants to get into a refugee camp tomorrow. Can you help? There, it, It's not so far out in left field. One of the boards I serve on is the U.S. arm of the U.N. High Commission for Refugees. So I had 15 minutes until the next meeting. So two things crossed my mind. One, the last thing the world needs is another documentary film. He was a filmmaker about refugees that no one's going to see. And two, I have too much on my plate. Mm -hmm. I had 15 minutes, though, so I decided. I made a few calls, and lo and behold, Brant was able to visit a camp in Lesbos the next day. During that, he became, during that visit, he, he became even more enamored with the cause of refugees. A month later, I got a call from a friend who is an advisor to the nonprofit CARE saying, Susan, do you happen to know some filmmakers who can go and spend (laughs) 10 days at the Osrock refugee camp on the Syrian border in Jordan to teach teach kids how to make film to tell their story? I was like, hold that thought. (laughs) I reached out to Brant within two minutes. He said yes. And not only did he say yes, he brought eight Hollywood film directors with him. They spent almost two weeks at this camp teaching Syrian youth who had fled for their lives how to tell stories using film. Because of that, Epic Foundation actually wrote a check to create a film academy that now actually is still in the camp because there's still people coming in and staying there for far too many years. Lastly, he went on to raise millions of dollars for CARE, UNICEF, UNHCR, and he created a a narrative film called Refugee that Angelina Jolie saw Mm -hmm. and actually now, given her role as a global ambassador to UNHCR, takes that film on the global stage to basically 
show world leaders that this this there's 88 million people who are just still displaced. Anyhow, long story. However, I don't want to take credit for I mean, that could have all happened anyways. But I like to think I played a very small role in helping mm. make that happen. But it was a germination of that. We we could we could guess, but regardless, get rid of our uh, preconceived notions, mm-hmm. right? I yeah. I was letting those get the best of me, and I put them in a box mm-hmm. for yeah. once, right? Or not for once. I mean, I I I typically take chances, but when you're real busy, it's hard. Yeah, it's it's that. It's also self limiting beliefs that people sort of hold themselves back yeah. from, from doing yeah. things, from taking a chance. Um, yeah. So that sort of serendipity is clearly played a, a major role in in your life you're also you've changed gone through a different sort of career journey as well and you've taken on csr roles in major corp, corporations and businesses a lot of people resist change they f- feel uncomfortable with ambiguity and some like your friend beth talks a lot in her book about the importance of being comfortable with ambiguity how do you deal with it as you've progressed through life and taken on sort of challenges and the, the fear of failure and, and knowing that there's risk involved in everything. You know, with age comes so much guidance. I mean, I sometimes wish the brain I have now and the confidence that I have now, although I do still have imposter syndrome, if I could bottle that up and put that back in my 20-something self, the risks I would have taken. My late father always said nothing is a prison sentence, meaning it is worth trying because you can always go back, except, of course, a prison sentence. But luckily, I haven't had that happen yet. But I find that in this day and age, if we're not getting companies to change and evolve in all sorts of ways, corporate responsibility being one of them, then we're losing the opportunities we have as, as successful business people, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we should be pushing. Companies have so much power and so much wealth whether they're smaller or, or large, there's so much good that they can be doing in the world. Maybe that isn't their quote unquote primary reason for being, but you know what? We can push them. And I see it as opportunity rather than something that's going to be a problem. So you made a significant life decision, age 48, to set up your own business, which is a bold decision by anyone's standards, but to focus primarily on corporate social responsibility and encouraging businesses to do more, as you say, than just simply be in the, in the, in the, in the business of making profit for shareholders. And I think today we talk about triple bottom line. Doing that obviously sort of took a significant amount of belief and, and, a, and a large level of risk to do it. What compelled you? What made you? <laughs> and suddenly... Because you could have just carried on doing what you were doing. Sure. Well, I, I hate to disappoint you, Mark, but... I was working at, at another consulting firm that had a um, exodus of its talent. And when you work in consulting, when the talented people leave, guess what? You got to go because mm. there's not going to be work to, to be consulting on. And I started to get nervous. Again, ageism is alive and well in America. And I put out a few feelers to organizations that I knew and friends at those organizations, and they two of which Global Citizen Year, which is an amazing nonprofit, and Girl Rising both said, Susan, if you leave, we will give you consulting work for the next three to four months. So (laughs) I left on a Friday and started on a Monday because I was terrified that they would change their mind. And I had had an income. If we go back to remember the thrifty household, I had had an income since I was 15. 
Yeah. I mean, you name it, lifeguarding, waitressing, I, a whole other slew of, of work, babysitting, what have you. But, you know, I had bag lady syndrome. I was terrified that, <laughs> and the, the, the fellow that had been living with me was not bringing in any income. So it was on my shoulders. So I literally hung the shingle is out. This, is this the fellow from McPherson? No, we Another. broke up in 2003, which also is funny part of the story. I'm an accidental entrepreneur. I never would have named it McPherson Strategies if I thought it was going to become something. Not because he wasn't a great guy. He, he, he certainly was. But we've been divorced since 2003. No, there was a there was another fella and uh, a different podcast. <laughs> that, that, that's for a different podcast. But anyhow, I I had to make a living. And I, again, was terrified. But I looked at this as just a placeholder until the next job came along. And now, eight years later, I have... 12 employees and I'm just lucky they let me come to work every day. And that safety net suddenly sort of became a much bigger trampoline to yes. great things. Yes. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm not going to lie. I mean, consulting is hard and the challenge when, and, and you know this, yeah. you, you only have visibility so far in the future, but if you do really good work and you hire really good people and support them, it's magical. Mm-hmm. I mean, we talk a lot today. I mean, it's often been used as lip service by corporations talking about brand purpose. And I mean, clearly CSR now has been thrust from just being a line item in a corporate um, report to being at the core of businesses and mission and, and core brand purpose. And it's necessary as we, you know, just around like today and yesterday and last week in New York when seeing the the pollution filled skies and the red sun because of the fires and the and the and the smoke drifting across the continent and the floods in China around us there's we're we're rapidly approaching a climate catastrophe and that's only a plus 1.2 degree increase not 1.5 or 2 that's been predicted by the uh, the Paris accord and the sort of the targets we've been set so what you're doing is clearly incredibly important and imperative on every major corporation to improve their SDG strategies. Do you think that enough's been done fast enough? And how do you deal with the the resistance you must encounter to in, when you're trying to encourage an acceleration of pace of change? Well, I maybe I'm an eternal optimist, but I, in this past year, have seen a noticeable difference and a noticeable difference difference in lip service and actual action. Okay. We have gone from companies trying to be carbon neutral to carbon positive. And do you think that's because of COVID and the impact it's had? I think it's a combination of everything. Okay. I think it's the transparency that has happened since social media came into being. I think as you just witnessed it, it's right at our doorstep, right? It used to be that these horrific monsoons and fires, et cetera, were far, far away, right? They're they're in our backyard. And as you just said, in in lower Manhattan, the sun looked like it, the the Japanese flag. It was that brilliant red. They are wanting to hire the best and brightest who are only going to work for companies. Mm-hmm. You have, you know, COVID, which proved like beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are all connected and everything we do actually has impact on not only your neighbors, but our neighbors in Bangladesh and in Japan. And so, you know, from a supply chain standpoint, you know, for the last 10 years, companies started to step up. Probably I would go so far and say even faster than government, at least the U.S. government, because their supply chain was impacted Mm -hmm. when 
there was there was trouble in various or climate trouble in various countries. But now, right here in our doorstep, if you're a Silicon Valley con- company, you have the fires affecting your employees right yeah. there. So I think it's it it's no longer kind of you know lip service. It is happening now. And I think companies are, are are stepping up for all sorts of things that they didn't do 10 or 15 years ago. I mean, getting involved in, you know, social impact issues beyond climate. Oh, yeah. Well, no, if any business is, is serious about retaining um, and attracting talent, mm-hmm. they've got to have a clear connection between the 17 SDGs, yeah. Uh, yeah. Sustainable Development Goals, and their core area of business focus. Because, yeah. as you say, everything's connected. Yeah. And they leave a footprint somewhere. So if they're not doing something to address the negative externalities of their business, they're going to be caught out in a transparent, more open world where people can search and find out very easily what's oh, happening. So, everything. The Komodos are open. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, so it is good. So that, that so you're optimistic. Well, that I'm, I'm, we're moving in the right direction. Yes. Faster. Yes. I, I, I think it needs to be even faster. And I think companies have in the, as i said earlier they have so much power and influence that when they say when a ceo of a major corporation says this is reality people listen no uh, it's true and we are hearing great things coming out of institutional investors whether it's blackrock or you know they're everyone's embracing esg driven investment strategies yeah. which which is great i did notice that you're involved with kindred and I discovered Kindred a couple of years ago when I met Ian Schaefer, um, an ex-agency guy that set up this platform for purpose-driven leaders focused on the future of socially responsible and equitable businesses. And they were going to do a, an event. And I remember thinking that's going to be a great event to go to because it's going to change the way we think about purpose and realising that they were going to be doing this wonderful event and that obviously had to be cancelled. How did you get involved with Kindred? Well, like you, I met Ian, who I think is should also be showcased in my book because he does the art of connecting masterfully and genuinely and filled with generosity. And I met him maybe four or five years ago as he was starting to kind of um, figure out what the look and feel of Kindred would be. And I was just giving him guidance and, mm-hmm. and you know, solicited and unsolicited solicited advice. And I was supposed to speak at that conference that got canceled. Uh-huh. And then it got canceled again. <laughs> And, you know, they've adapted as well as any organization could to be this online. But I think, you know, if we can ever get past this crazy vortex we're in, I do think that there's a lot of legs, so to speak, of Kindred and the future it offers, because there really isn't that many. I mean, you have Business for Social Responsibility, you have Center for Corporate Citizenship and these various trade associations, Mm -hmm. but there aren't very many kind of communities of people who are working in impact at all different le- level levels or levers within an organization because corporate responsibility, sustainability, corporate social impact really encompasses everything, you know, a, a DEI strategy, you know, the, the, the actual manufacturing of goods. I mean, we need to look at this as baked systemically mm-hmm. into the business. Yeah. And you think that that's what is going to result from Kindred as it progresses? Well, I, I think Kindred has a great opportunity to bring those types of folks together so that they can be sharing information. You know, there, there are other organizations. There's Nation Swell. You know, there's there's other more siloed communities. There's a ton of women's communities that, again, I'm just seeing now impact is at the core of so many of mm-hmm. them, which is a great fit. When you go into 
your clients? I mean, is there any sort of standardized approach that you take to guide them or is it does it have to be because they're also oh. different? Well, we specifically focus on the communications of impact. So that is the lens we use. Uh, right, okay. But I can just say I wish there was a standardization because every just like every human is different, every company is different. And you know, I always go back years ago to Tim Cook's statement that, you know, companies need to have values because and CEOs need to reflect those values because companies are made up of people. So every single entity is going to be different from one another. Now, I will say the SDGs are a wonderful blueprint from which to approach companies and approach the impact. But what we help companies do is articulate what they're doing to the audiences they want to reach. So it could be to their own employees. It could be to their investors. It could be towards to to their consuming public and then using all the tools necessary to help them do that. I will say on the spectrum, we tend to be looked at as what as a firm that's going to help push them to be a bit more assertive and aggressive. You know, we're not going to be, you know, ExxonMobil isn't going to have us come in to hold the status quo. Huh. But it is, it is important. I mean, there's a reticence amongst a lot of businesses to talk about environment because what they're doing to offset, let's say, the negative externalities, there's always a worry. Well, that they're that not going to meet the, the goals. Yeah, that you'll always be accused of what you've done in the past rather than right. what you're building right. for the future. I mean, I, I've heard you talk about just the fact that you yourself drive a car and, you know, you look at what's happening today in the electric vehicle space, you guarantee that regardless of the investments that are going into electric vehicles from all the major OEMs, they're not going to t- talk about environment, positive environmental impact because of the accusations of what they've been responsible for right, in right. the past. So it is, it's very hard yeah. to deal with communication. So it's, but I think there, have to be, there has to be more... I think the more confident that organizations are, and particularly C level, about talking about what you're you're yeah. doing, yeah. the more likely then will they will accelerate the actual actions themselves. I think it becomes self fulfilling. Well, and also vulnerability now is vitally important for leaders to embrace, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's better to put out the fact that you're trying to do something and then keep your constituents apprised of that. So that if you are short on meeting that goal, you will be gaining forgiveness, right? Then not saying anything at all. Yeah. Okay. But it's, it also goes back to, there's a crossover with what you're doing with the lost art of connecting and building relationships. If you're not communicating and you're not seeing what you're doing, you're not being vulnerable, you're unlikely to then elicit a positive response where something might happen as a result of what you've said. Exactly. So it's, it's the same principle. But anyway, let's talk about your book, The Lost Art of Connecting, The Gather, Ask and Do Method to Building Meaningful Business Relationships. I think it's more than business relationships as well. But could you just unpack the sort of the, the core tenets of gather, ask and do? Certainly. And I should also just say many people who see the book title think I wrote the book in reaction to the pandemic, but it was actually put forth four years ago because I had felt that we had lost the humanity in our connecting. We had become very transactional and all we cared about were the clicks and the likes and the followers, myself included. I am not absolving myself. So the underlying theme of the entire book is always leading with how can you be of help? How can you be helpful to others? And this is not about not taking the oxygen mask first, because I fervently believe when we lead with how can we be of help to others, the help comes back to us in spades. So this, the book is divided, the methodology Gather, Ask, Do is three sections. And in the gather section, first and most importantly, you connect with 
the person who you live inside of, and that's you, and you literally do a deep reflection on yourself. And one, find out what is a meaningful connection to you, because to all of us, that can be a very differing idea. Two, what are your hopes and dreams and goals that you want to attain in four years, four months, four weeks even? What are your superpowers or secret sauces that you can offer up? Because remember, the underlying theme is how can I be of help? And lastly, what are you going to do in your power to break that hermetically sealed bubble that many of us have found ourselves in? And that is attracting and being connected or connecting with people who are look like us, sound like us, same color as us, same age as us, et cetera. What are we going to do to break out of that? And when you think of the goals that I mentioned, who is it? that you want to connect with or reconnect with that is going to help you meet your goals. And the reason it's important to just put that kind of boundary around it is there's 10 billion, I think, 9 billion people on this planet. So there's a lot of people Certainly to connect with. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's good to be somewhat strategic. The ask phase is where you actually learn to ask the meaningful questions of others so that you can understand what are their hopes and dreams and wants and desires. And if you listen carefully, which we are woefully bad at doing, you can get to the third phase, which is my favorite phase, and that's the do. And that's when you take that data that you've listened to and you then are responsive, reliable, trustworthy because you follow up and say that you or do the things that you said you're going to do. So that's a very high level look. I mean, I'm a, a note taker. Maybe it's an age thing. I do the but, same thing. You know, I've got my, my, my moleskin here and I got use notability on my, my iPad to take notes with uh, my Apple um, Pencil. And always in it, you know, whether it's a, a meeting with a connection someone's made or whether it's with a client or with a podcast guest, there's always, oh, I should connect you to this person. You would really. And it's and when you start to do it, it just becomes second nature. But you have to remember to go back your take notes, because if you don't, I found that it's forgotten. Then you're like, oh, who was that I said I would connect that person to? And it's just it, it's a it's a habit. I think we all have to develop. And it's something that's so simple, but I think often overlooked. Beth Comstock described your book as a joy to read and will forever change the way you think about networking. Now, I talked earlier about the networking events that I've attended. As we get back to these in-person networking events, which I'm sure certainly in New York, it's beginning to happen. I even got an email today from Eventbrite saying, hey, events are back. Yeah. What advice would you give to the, not to people attending the events, but the organizers events to rethink how they could, what could they take from your book that might create a force multiplier rather than just relying on individuals to do it? Well, I I would suggest they take a take tips out of what conference organizers have done the past few years, and that is, if it's feasible, to create some sort of pre-connection, right? Where you can, I mean, we have all the AI we need, and we have all the social media tools to actually find out ahead of time who's going to be in the room and do some matchmaking. You know, you you were so lovely asking me questions about my childhood. My mother, being the wife of a professor, before she went back to work and dove deeply, would every, you know, a few times a year host these parties. And our house was very small, so they were open houses, but she had to make sure that not everybody came at the same time, right? They couldn't fit. So what she would do is she from the party, the open house would go from four until eight, and she would invite people 
that had some semblance of connection from four to six, and then five to seven, and then six to eight. And it was an overlapping way. Now, again, she didn't have the technology to, to do some preliminary, but I think as an organizer, and this is something that I do when I used to host events, and hopefully I will again soon, is do this kind of pre, it's almost like if I was a yenta in the old country, you know, you, <laughs> you do a little digging and find out what are some similarities or I like to say uncommon, uh, finding the commonalities and the uncommonalities so that when people walk in, they already feel comfortable. Right. No, that, that's, that's good. I mean, I hope that, that more organizers think more about the power that they leverage when they bring people together at these networking oh. events, rather than just relying on individuals to do the work, and they should do more work. Well, and I'd like to help people get from FOMO to JOMO, and I don't mean joy of missing out. I mean joy of beating others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's... It, it's also... Uh, I think coming out of the pandemic, there is going to be a real opportunity, a business opportunity for people to facilitate experiences that build on what you write about in the book that help people come together and break down all barriers and see the fact that we are all you know that most overused phrase of the pandemic we're all in it together yeah yeah and you know we want more people to connect and talk and you know i mentioned earlier i was doing this small project with vanessa called back the neighborhood and looking at how do you re-knit the fabric of neighborhoods i mean your book is like a template, a boilerplate, a set of tools that people can use to connect, not just in business networking events, but it could be within their neighborhoods, right, right. block association meetings. It could be, yeah, with, with parents and yeah. teachers, all those things. So I think it's in, incredibly valuable. The other, the other thing that I really liked about it, and it made me think about how we move forward to improve the way that the work environment is you talk about the four different types of managers, teachers, cheerleaders, the always on manager and the connectors. And clearly you want a connector manager. Could you just talk about those four and how do we, how can businesses start to nurture more of a connector style management, a connector style of management style in their teams? Sure. Because it will have a benefit. Well, it's interesting. The, the you know, I have found in now almost 30 years of professional work that, you know, people are only going to do what they are compensated on, right? And, you know, we know that what is measured gets done. And I think for company leaders, they have to look very specifically at the four different ones that, that you mentioned, but specifically what attributes each bring to the table. And studies show that the connecting manager leads to much more productivity, both within the company, but also connecting the company to its outside world, which inevitably is going to help the company be more successful, right? Great, more clients, more visibility, better way to attract and retain and hire. But I definitely think unless people, unless employees, specifically in this case, understand and managers understand what's in it for them and why do connector managers why are they more successful? And so I think it's like companies have to make their employees understand that this is a valuable asset and it's not relegated to the annual sales conference or the monthly happy hour, that connecting both internally with each other, but also with clients, with friends of clients, right, is actually going to be valuable in the end. It also has to have an impact on HR and hiring policies as well as training policies. 
And it's clearly, if you can identify those people, then the asset that you're getting inside the company is is so much more valuable. Well, and they are your most valuable yeah. asset. Mm-hmm. A heck of a lot more valuable than a desk. And especially in this last year and a half, desks yeah. became meaningless. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I suppose we touched on this, but parents and teachers, do you think parents can learn from reading your book and nurturing these skills in children? I mean, you're, I think I mean, you've talked very fondly about your mother and the impact she had and also your father. Could parents become more aware of how they nurture their children to be more confident if there might be more on the the shyer side to why they should go out there and make themselves heard and connect and listen as you make the point yeah. out so importantly in your book, the, the talent and the skill, the, the importance of that developing that skill? A couple of thoughts come to mind, Mark. I mean, I am not a parent, so I want to be very mindful of the fact that this is coming from a place of non-experience. Yeah. But you know, having knowing many people who have children and seeing this behavior that has taken over our world about always being on our phone or on, I can't imagine that is teaching our children to be better connectors, right? <laughs> and we can't expect our children to turn off the screens if we're not doing so ourselves. I also think it's really important if we want our children to grow up being empathetic and, and having a mindset of connecting is good, we have to show and tell, right? We have to actually do it ourselves. And bring people into our homes when it's feasible and show them that it's more than just friendship, that it's actually the good, the impact that can come from. And I I talk in the book about this notion of when you move to a new city, you know, how do you meet your neighbors? How do you meet people who are different from yourself? And I've always been a big believer in volunteer work and volunteering in your local community. And this goes back to what you are doing with Vanessa, you know, the founder of, a, of Another Tomorrow, that, you know, we... We live, and especially in big cities, with pe- nearby people who are very different from us. And by, you know, showing our children and getting involved in local organizations that need our help, that need our, our minds, that need our time, can really be a lifelong lesson to learn not only about connecting, but also of service. Yeah, no, that's good advice. I'll be needing to do that soon. I'm moving to Austin in September. Oh, oh gosh, I have lots of friends I can connect yeah. with. And then Emily, I told you about Emily Ramshaw. She, you know, the 19th is headquartered in Austin. Oh, right. Yes, okay. Yes. Oh, well, there you go then. That's and then it. I, have, okay. I have about 12 other really good friends. So you're yeah. going to be all set. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll hold you to that then. Where do you want to be when we hit 2030? I, it could be New York or it could be where you are with your business or your second or third book. I would like to be healthy and I'd like to be in love. Nothing better than that. Yeah, yeah, that that would be, and that could be anywhere in the world. I am not. I love. I love New York City. I love Brooklyn, but I I can travel. Uh, <laughs> so okay. just putting that out there. Okay, where do you live in Brooklyn? I live in Brooklyn Heights, but I've been single for more than six years, so I kind of feel like it's time. Okay, You're putting it out into the world. So <laughs> I know. I, li- yeah. I said that that I was like, uh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I told you I'm so damn transparent. I had a client when I was working in London at McCann and was doing a pro bono project and she was French and she'd set up this online dating agency. And the whole reason for doing it was to meet people. Oh. And, but she did it. And it was a really nice way of doing it. It was a membership club ahead of its time, really. And she would invite people to the dating site, but they had to then name friends who would have dinner parties with. 
and they would, she would then connect to put their names in and then she'd look at their profiles <laughs> go, well they would do well and they would have these dinner parties at individuals houses once every two weeks and then she would move people around the table at each course and then see where things end up at the end of the night I love it I want to be her. Yeah, she was wonderful. Yeah, I don't know about what happened to it, but yeah, yeah, it was a good idea at the time. What do you want your legacy to be? Well, I've been told what my epitaph is going to say, and that is that she got the proverbial shit done. done. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I've been told not. Uh, you've done it. You've done it. Yeah, enough already. Enough, yeah. right? Yeah. I think that I was compassionate and mm-hmm. and kind. Honestly, mm-hmm. that would that would make uh, me enough. make me happy. And make your mother happy as well. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Quick four questions. What principles do you stand by? Kindness. Kindness and compassion. Yeah, <laughs> kindness. Well, and, and coming from a place of generosity always. Yeah, of course. We all make hard choices. have to make hard choices in our lives. What choices have you made that were tough at the time but it did turn out in retrospect to be the right decision? Ending a toxic relationship about six years ago. And that was one of the hardest things I've ever done. I didn't want to be alone yeah. um, again, and but I, I realized that the time had come. Uh-huh. Mm. Do you think you would have written the book if you'd not ended that? Oh, I, I no. I mean, it, it was it was so much mind space that it probably my company wouldn't have been where I am today. I might not have joined the board of UN, you know, USA for UNHCR, the Lower East Side Girls Club. I might not have inve- been an angel investor in. 19 women-led startups. So all to say, a lot of good has come from it. And you, and you know Claire Wasserman? I do know Claire, yeah. yeah. She's lovely. Oh, my goodness. Yes, ladies get paid. Yeah. Amazing. I've been trying to get her on the podcast oh, well, for like two years she now. She just got married, so she's a bit a little busy. No, and then had a book, yeah. yeah. But I might be able to nudge. She gave her a little nudge when she yes. just yeah, settled back into the routine. Okay. Where do you go to discover new ideas? My roof deck. Ah, perfect. And I went to Antarctica in oh, January of 2020. Wow. And I will just tell you, somebody said to me before I went, is this your first trip to Antarctica? And I laughed because I thought to myself, it's not like it's like the New Jersey coast, right? I mean, or, you know, the Hamptons or something. I, I But the day I got home, which was January 2020, I wanted to do is go back. So wow. go it's figure. Extraordinary. It's, it must be. Life changing. One of the most extraordinary people I've ever met was Sir Ranald Fiennes, British explorer, both Arctic and polar, and gone over the empty quarter and stuff, and a real adventurer. And I went to his farmhouse back in 1998 in Devon, and he showed me his photo. It was a, you know, the old carousel. Of all those pictures from his solo crossing of Antarctica. Well, I can't be but compared uh, so, and, <laughs> and you see the photographs and the beauty and the expanse of it. It must be unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just the, the where the sky meets the mountains meets the water. And, and to have something that is still to this day not mm. touched yeah. is, is unfathomable, if I can yeah. say that word. Uh, okay. Well, this place of new ideas. What is the one problem worth solving? misinformation and disinformation mm. and what that is doing to our society. Huh, yeah. Both from climate, from COVID, from 
you know, I mean, I, I have to believe that that is what is, and, 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 and there's a zillion reasons why, but I do believe for us to solve all these other problems, we have to get, get to that. the root of yeah. this, which has led to a lack of trust, which has led to everything and anything that's going wrong right now. Okay. If you could select four people from history or from today to help you solve that problem and plan for a better future, who would they be? Well, originally when I saw your question about dinner parties, I thought about who I'd want around the table for a dinner party. I can make it that, but I just, <laughs> no, I just want it slightly. Sorry, I should. Yeah. Just when you said that, made me think, well, maybe we connect them. Yes. Well, well let's I do mean, the dinner party first. The dinner party, I was actually thinking I would love to have Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> Shirley Chisholm. Who? Shirley Chisholm. Who's that? She was a political activist, incredible black leader. Please definitely look her up. Catherine the Great. <laughs> right. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Well, that'd be a feisty one. Well, I was just thinking, I'm sure Ruth Bader Ginsburg met Eleanor Roosevelt. Mm. But it would be wonderful to bring them together, given just their pr propensity for good in society. Yeah. Obviously, they had their different kind of elements that they were focused on, given the the, the generations in between them. But I just would love to see, you know, the, the, it wasn't necessarily out of like what it would be together, but mm -hmm. they, they'd be four people that I would love to have yeah. the opportunity to to chat with. In terms of the climate issues, I mean, definitely Jane Goodall. Our wonderful friend, Greta. <laughs> yeah. And I would say John Kerry, who's doing a ton of work around climate. He is. Oh, but now we're, we're talking about the problem, the, the misinformation. misinformation. That's a whole another. I would say, well, Tristan Harris. Definitely. Renee DeRust. And finally, you would invite. Yael Eisenstadt. Perfect. These are foremost thinkers on what's happening with, with misinformation and disinformation. What's the question no one asks you that you wish they would? This is a tough question because I have been asked everything <laughs> within reason. <laughs> so I don't know if I can really answer that. Okay. Well, maybe it is this question then. Right. Who has made you reevaluate yourself or what? Yeah, I would have to say... A woman by the name of Stacy Marie Ishmael. She is a, a a very very successful journalist, editor. She has a long career at you know BuzzFeed and then the Texas Tribune, and she is a leader in helping us understand anti racism. And you know I like to think I am I am well versed and well educated in the world of social responsibility of of, you know, dealing with our society's ills, but I have learned so much from her wow. and how she goes about, like, helping us understand our places in the world, if that makes sense. And and she's just a remarkable individual. Okay. I'll read up about her. I've not heard of her. Okay. Impossible question. What would your advice be to someone that's about to graduate, go study, start first job, that's got an amazing goal and ambition, but it's being told... Forget it. That's just not going to happen. Do everything you can to make it happen. And also know it doesn't have to happen right away. Mm -hmm. That it's a series of missteps sometimes that helps you mm -hmm. find your true North Star. And, you know, I joke in the book, and I shouldn't say joke, I, this notion of it's 
it's the detours, not the destination. Yeah. So what did your father say that to you? Actually, I think it was more just my life experience because if you had asked me in my 20s that I was going to be 56, single, parentless, childless, running a company, living in Brooklyn Heights, I would have been like, are you kidding me? (laughs) But the beautiful thing is, is it's the detours that got me here. That was never the destination. So the the world that 20-somethings are, are inheriting or, or, you know, progressing in is going to be filled with all kinds of hips and starts mm-hmm. for both environmental reasons, practical reasons, financial reasons, you name it. So in other words, don't set your sights so at such a young age on one golden thing because there's a thousand golden things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are. I got in, interviewed by two young Scottish podcasters a few weeks ago and they asked me about what was the most important or serendipitous or event in my life and I said you know you, everything's connected so you have to sort of almost trace things back to the first moment where you think that if that didn't happen and you know mine was a, getting fracturing my skull age seven and having a personality change oh my goodness I'm and so sorry all those things they had, hadn't everything else happened as a result of that so you go you go it is it's totally yeah Everything is life is a, yeah. a set of detours, but it is also, I think, important. You're, it's having that courage that you've clearly had yeah. to take those detours and not go on well, pause. And this is what my dad had said: the nothing is a prison sentence. Yeah. So when you make choices, if they don't end up being the right choices, if you didn't burn bridges, mm-hmm. which is what my mother would say, <laughs> you then have the opportunity to return. So to me is is be mindful of the world you're living in at the moment so you don't, you know, muck it up, let's say, but also know that if you don't take risks, you just won't ever find out. No. Very true. Final questions. We're coming out of the lockdown, hopefully, and I'm desperate to go to karaoke. What would your go-to karaoke song be? Um, Beth Orton's Central Reservation. Don't know. Okay. Beth Orton. Yes. Beautiful voice. Central Reservation. We've watched, you mentioned too many documentaries. I think we've all had a fair share of too many documentaries, films, series during lockdown. Anything that you think people might have missed that they should watch? Babylon Berlin. You're not the first person that said that. I haven't watched it yet. Oh, my God. Well, again, as a student of history, I find it fascinating that we didn't learn more about the Weimar Republic. Mm. And I've even, everything I've read about the actual series, even... Germans growing up didn't learn, and, and in recent times, the period between um, the world wars and instead would go right to the rise of, of the Nazi Socialist Party. Mm-hmm. But what led up to that is absolutely fascinating, and the parallels to the current U.S. society are yeah. uncanny. Mm-hmm. So highly, highly, highly recommended. Okay, we'll put that down. We like to offer a book to our listeners that submit good comments or in Instagram or on the website. Obviously, your book book be the one. But is there another book aside from yours that you think we should get, give to I answers? absolutely love The Daughters of Kobani, which is by, by Gail Lamont. She's It's her third uh, best-selling book, and it's the story of the women who fought ISIS um, in Syria. Wow. Yeah. Daughters of Kobani. Daughters. Daughters. The oh. Daughters of, yeah. And the author is... Gail Lemon, L-E-M-M-O-N. Gail, G-A-Y-L-E. And she would be a remarkable guest. She's wow. Her previous two books, one was called The Dressmaker of Kar Kanar, 
she basically kept her village alive by earning money under the Taliban, which was forbidden. And then her next book was Ashley's War, which was the true story of women in combat before anybody else knew there were women in combat. So fascinating, just brilliant woman. And she is, she's a long history as a journalist, but she also is a fellow at the Center uh, or the Council of Foreign Relations. Okay. All right, we'll put all those down. And that leads us to our final question. Who should we interview next? I would recommend Catherine Finney, a brilliant black entrepreneur founded the Genius Guild, which is really trying to disrupt the world of finance and funding. Because, you know, if we keep going at it in fits and starts, as opposed to addressing the actual systemic problem, it's never going to change. To get money flowing into the fastest growing entrepreneurs, which are black women. Uh, yeah. Oh, that would be fascinating. So we edit and then once it's live, we then ask you to then make a connection if you could. I would be happy to. That'd be nice. Well, Susan, thank you very much for your time and uh, your great answers and your wisdom and just acknowledge you for, you know, this, this, your character and your kindness, your curiosity and, and I think also your boldness and courage to have, you know, gone into a space of ambiguity at such a late age in life and to be doing things that are having such a positive impact on individuals and societies. And like you said about the recounting the story of how you started that series of connections that led to the filmmakers going into the camp in Lesbos, I think you have no idea yet the systemic, positive systemic impact that your book is going to have on changing the way people think about building relationships and networking and, and connecting. And I think it's a positive thing for society. So I really look forward to where things go. Mark, thank you so much. And thank you for those beautiful words. I will treasure them. Okay, that's all for this week, folks. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, rate, recommend, or review, depending on where you listen. And if you have someone you'd like us to interview, just DM us on Instagram at The Impossible Network or email us at info at theimpossiblenetwork.com. And please give our other podcast, The Raw Hospitality Show, a listen. They are both Fabrica Collective Productions. See you next time.